with that said, if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. A helpful tip in the New Testament, all the books that start with T are together. Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus, those are all back-to-back. Very convenient. So um, for, so 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, uh, we've been going through uh, a sermon series called Faith in the Gospel. And today we find ourselves here. And so uh, we're going to be talking today about God's call for us to walk in holiness. I'm going to begin this morning by reading the first two verses, uh, and then we'll go from there. Paul writes, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. I'm going to keep reading. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of God. So there's going to be a lot to unpack today. I'm going to start with these first two verses, and the very first word that Paul begins with is finally. So this marks a transition in the book. Paul's letters, often when he writes the first half or the first section, deals with the main thing that he's writing for. Maybe it's an instruction of some sort, a challenge, or whatever the main reason why he's been writing. For the Thessalonians, he had to leave them for a while, and he was checking up on them. He sent Timothy ahead to see if in the midst of affliction their faith was standing strong. And Timothy came back with a good report that the Thessalonians, even though they were facing affliction and persecution, hardship because of their newer faith in Christ, um, even in the midst of that, they still stood strong. So Paul is writing, praising God for that, celebrating that, giving them encouragement. And so now in these last few chapters, he's turning to some other secondary matters that are no less important, but they're generally more practical practical applications or directions. And his concern in these first few verses is to remind them, as he did when he originally came preaching, to live a life pleasing to God. And as you know, he's going to talk here in this chapter, in the first part, he's talking about uh, that God calls us to holiness. And two areas he's talking about, first of all, is sexual morality, which we'll cover today. And then next week, talking about love. He wants us to grow in those two areas, though that's where God calls us. And I want you to notice Paul's tone in all of this is very gentle, even as he's insistent. Right? He is still, as he's teaching them, he's still gentle, as you read earlier, like a nursing mother, even as he's encouraging like a father. He still maintains that tone. So Paul is, is quick to encourage them. He says, hey, I, I call it, you received this. You remember our teaching. I urged you when I was with you originally to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. And he's quick to say, just as you're doing, right? That's, he's saying, I am so proud of you, he's saying. 
We called you to live a life pleasing to God, and you're doing it, and that's great. So he doesn't have a hard word of correction. He's not coming saying, guys, I, I, I called you to, to walk, to live a certain way now that you're in Christ, and you're not doing it. He doesn't have to do that. He's written hard letters before to the Galatians is one of them, to the Corinthians, his first letter, especially the Corinthians. Those are hard letters where he's dealing with some tough stuff. Here, he's like, man, I'm so proud of you. But, you know, so you could say, well, why is Paul saying anything at all, right? I mean, how many of you have a boss who, who just steps into your office or steps into your cubicle, whatever, and says, by the way, you're doing exactly what you should, and then walk away? That's nice when they do, do that, right? But sometimes that, that isn't always the case. Why is Paul writing at all? Well, he doesn't want them to be content with their current level of obedience. Just this idea of, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. If I just kind of like just keep doing what I'm doing, I'm doing all right. He doesn't want them to be self-satisfied with their progress in the Lord. To the effect that they grow stagnant. Rather, he calls them to continue their growth in Christ. To continue more and more, he says. The question we're kind of faced with as we read this, and I ask you is, how is your walk with the Lord going? If you've been in life groups or accountability groups or discipleship in any, in any way, that's usually a pretty common question. In my, in my core group with my uh, middle school and high school guys, I'll ask, hey, how's your walk with the Lord going? Paul's exhortation applies to us. Are you doing well in your walk with the Lord? Really, are you growing in it? See, because I think there's, generally speaking, two dangers. As, as we're going to use the analogy of following Jesus, walking along the path. Jesus talks about you know, the following him, the, the narrow, the straight and narrow we talk about sometimes. There's two dangers that really often confront us. One is going off the path entirely, right? Just falling into some severe temptation and departing from Christ, right? That's, that's one thing that we, uh, one danger we, we, uh, we face. The temptations, diversion, errors that, that trap us, that Satan is, is laying for us to, to fall into. That is definitely a danger. But another danger that we have to be careful about that we're often maybe not as aware of is just standing still or not moving at all. You know, because we, we talk about where we're following Christ. I mean, there, there's another analogy, you know, we're, we just sang about, right? I'm standing in Christ. I'm standing on the rock of Christ. That is a good thing. We talked about that, I think, last week, right? Standing strong in faith. That is one analogy, right? That, that should, we're always standing in Christ. But this is a, this is a different analogy, when we're following Christ, are we actually following or have we stopped following? You've ever been on a hike, maybe as a kid or maybe with your kids, right? And you're, you're going and you get about a mile in and all that youthful energy just kind of wears off and those little legs just can't do it anymore. I'm tired, right? Like, no, we, we got to go. We got to go. We're not that, we're not that much farther. And then they do this thing. <sighs> carry me, you know, like, like, I mean, you're like, right, and it's effective, right, it's, you'd almost rather that they have the energy just to go into the woods, you know, to veer off path, but then you're like, the car, it's not getting any, it's getting darker, and we got to go, and, you know, because you know you're not getting anywhere, right, it's like, you, you can't sit down on the trail, we actually have to get home at some point, You know, Christian, I, I got to say that it, that can be a danger for us as well. 
If, I, if, I, if someone asks you, how, how are you doing in your walk with the Lord? You know, good. I'm just kind of neutral. I'm not getting better. I'm not getting worse. That's not really a healthy place to be, actually. Right? If, if, if we ask you about uh, other areas in your life, you know, your marriage, your progress in work, you know, if, if you're an athlete and your coach says, how are you doing? Are you becoming better? You're like, well, I'm not getting worse. And that's not encouraging. That's not what your coach wants to hear, <laughs> Right? It's not what you would say, like if you're, you know, you're going for an evaluation for your job and your boss is, you know, you're up for a raise. How are you doing? Well, I'm not, I'm not getting more lazy. <laughs> you're not in a healthy place if you stay on the path, but you're not making any progress in it, right? As we just saying, Jesus has called us higher. He he wants us to grow in holiness, to progress onwards. So if you're in a place in your faith where you're not growing and you're content with that. It's not healthy. If you're not growing in prayer, growing in in obedience, growing in in love for the Lord and for your brothers and sisters in Christ, growing in knowledge, growing in service, growing in worship, what are you doing? If you're on autopilot and you're not walking with, with Jesus, you're sitting on the path. And if that's you, the simple thing, you know, like, hey, I'm glad you're on the path. That's what Paul says. Like, hey, I'm glad you're walking or I'm glad you're following Christ. But just don't be content. Pursue Christ. Keep pressing forward. Let us press on to know him more and more. I love that Paul calls our life of growth in Christ a walk, Right? Some places he calls it a race, no doubt about it, right? Because it is. Uh, But commentator Leon Morris notes that the the word walk pictures, I love this, steady if unspectacular progress. Walking is not exciting. (laughs) Okay, running can be, trail running can be, you know, running a marathon, you know, you get, you know, ultra running, all all these things, they're exciting. Walking is is not, speed walking just looks silly, okay? But regular old-fashioned walking is not fancy. It's slow, it's, it's, it's not the fastest way to travel, but it'll get you there eventually, right? Our, our journey with the Lord isn't, isn't always this grand, exciting adventure. Most of the time, it's just one day at a time, one step at a time, but progress. It's slow, but you're still getting there. It's called sanctification, growing in holiness, Growing day by day to love God more, to be like Him more, to have your thinking changed so you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. And you have a desire to be more obedient and you're growing in obedience. And it's slow and we stumble a lot. You know, sanctification, there's this process of growing more in obedience and more like Jesus. It's sometimes barely perceptible. It's like watching a tree grow, right? You can stand there all day and you're never going to see that tree grow. But you walk away for a year and come back. Oh, it's, it's taller. It's got more leaves. It's bearing fruit. And often our lives, our growth are just like that. But the thing is, are you making progress or are you content where you're at? Paul urges us to press on. Don't slow down. Be eager to make progress. Be eager to live a life pleasing to God. So Paul moves on from these introductory verses to speak specifically about growth and holiness in verses 3 through 8 and growth in love in verses 9 through 12. And as I said, we're going to be focusing mostly today on verses 3 through 8. 
and I read those uh, just a little bit ago. I'm actually going to read them again. Starting in verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in these things. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. So Paul wants to be clear about what it means to live a life pleasing to God. God desires for his people to be holy, right? Sanctification is, or sanct, you know, to sanctify, it's very related to this word holy. It's to be the process of growing in holiness. Holy is this idea of, of set, being set apart. It has the idea of, you know, special, different. When we say God is holy, we're talking about a, a couple ideas kind of wrapped together. One, God is unlike anything else in his creation. He is higher. He is greater. He is, it has the idea of perfection. It has the idea of, of purity and set apart. God calls his people to be like him, and so he sets them apart. You're to be different than everyone else. And you see this in Israel, even in weird ways. We read these laws for Old Testament Israel, and he's like, you, you know, you, you can't sow more than one kind of seed in a field, so you can't mix crops in a field. You're like, what? You can't have clothing that's made of different kinds of material. You're like, what? It's because all of it was to, to, to have a, a vivid picture of purity and separateness. You're to live different than the rest of the nations because you're to be holy. So it has these ideas of purity. And it says it is God's will, as one commentator puts it, it is God's will that God's people live God's way. It is God's will that God's people live God's way. Paul came preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a message of good news. Believe in Jesus Christ. Trust him and him alone to make you right with God. Our sins make us unholy. Our, our sins make us impure. They separate us from God and all they earn us is judgment. And there's nothing that we can do on our own. And we can't work our way out of it. We can't do enough good works to overcome it. We, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor on our part. God sent Jesus as a free gift to give his life in place of ours so that when we trust him, God sees him instead of us. That Jesus earned our righteousness. He took our sins upon himself and, earned, and took the punishment. And he gives us his righteous record so that we can stand before God as holy. Even though we still commit sins, they're covered, they're paid for, they're forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing that the gospel also offers. Not just forgiveness, but newness of life. That's what the resurrection tells us. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, you can keep on living your old life. You just get a free pass. Jesus, the gospel is no. I'm going to give you a new life, eternal life, a different kind of living. And so the call is, is that you would live this life that you're going to be living for eternity, a life that is God's way, that is like God. You can start living that now. In fact, you ought to be growing and living that now. So we're to be holy in every part of our life. That is God's um, will for us. We grow more and more like him, stripping away sinful desires and practices to not please him. 
in every area of our life, our speech, our time, your relationships, your work, your worship, everything about you is to be holy and growing in holiness. And here, he's specifically going to speak about our sexuality. Now, why is he writing this to the Thessalonians? Well, I'm not entirely sure if this was an issue for them. If the Thessalonians, if he knew that they were struggling with sexual sin, or if they were simply in danger of drifting to that, we certainly know that this would have been a problem uh, for the surrounding culture of the time. We'll talk about that a bit later. But Paul speaks in the Lord Jesus to command them to pursue holiness in their sexuality. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about sexuality this morning. It is a large topic, and we're not going to be able to cover everything. But this is what the text gives us. And we're going to see what God's will for us is on this issue today. It's an important part of our lives as human beings, right? Filled with the potential for great joy, but also great danger and great hurt. And so I want to remind you before, as we dive into this, as Paul does, that he says this by the command of Christ. You're going to see that multiple times throughout this text, he said, Paul is saying, hey, this isn't my opinion. This isn't Paul trying to push down my own personal tradition on you. He says, guys, this is Jesus Christ who gave his life for you, who calls you to holiness. He's the one who's commanding you here. He's going to warn us at the end as well. He says, if you disregard this, you're not disregarding Paul. You're not disregarding Pastor Matt. You're disregarding what God's will is for you. Guys, because Jesus, as we love talking about the Great Commission, and it begins, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Christians, we say, amen. You have all authority, Jesus. And he says, and I also have authority over your body. And that's where we come when we begin this text today. So I think that if we're going to talk about this, I think it's helpful to take a little bit of time. And if we're going to talk about sexual immorality, well, we have to know what sexual morality is, according to the scriptures. The call to holiness calls us to abstain from sexual immorality. So what do we mean by what I'm going to call for our purposes, biblical sexual morality. Generally speaking, I think you could describe it as sexual desire and activity according to God's design and purposes and for his glory. I would describe biblical sexual morality as sexual desire and activity according to God's design and purpose and for his glory. That means that sex is enjoyed within the bounds that God sets for the purposes and for his glory, right? And it is abstained from where it is outside of those boundaries. Let me, let me further define it, right? Biblical sexual morality is a good gift from God designed for procreation, pleasure, and oneness between a man and a woman in the bond of marriage. Because this is a definition, and I didn't put it on the screen. I'll read it one more time. Biblical sexual morality is a good gift from God designed for procreation, pleasure, and oneness between a man and a woman in the bond of marriage. There's so much we could say about this. That the scripture, there are so many scriptures that deal with marriage and sexuality, and we're not going to be able to cover them all today. So I really want to look at, at one major passage and just mention a few others. But we have to look at the very beginning because we get this definition from scripture. Genesis chapter 2. Verses 18 through 25. The Lord created man and then he says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names for all, to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. We see this where, where he's looking at all that God created and, he, and, and he's lonely, right? And God is in the midst of while he's naming, while he's exercising dominion, he's recognizing, hey, I see that all these animals have a partner and I don't. And God is making him very aware of that. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Really cool passage. And there's a few things I'd like to point out that we gather from this. First of all, we have here the creation of marriage. And guys, it is God's idea. It is. It was not good for man to be alone. He had no partner for ministry, for, uh, to, for marriage or for sex that was fit for him among all the creatures that God created. And so the woman was formed, and we see God's goodness in, in how we created a helper, right? How we created a partner that was like him, that was equal to him, and yet different enough from him. So the perfect were, were a good fit. He didn't create a lesser creature just to satisfy his sexual urges, or to be a lesser creature to, to be a servant to him, but rather an equal. Yet he didn't bring another male because they would be too much the same. He didn't bring two women to Adam, right? So we could have a harem. We see, what did God do? He brought a woman who was his equal, who was his partner. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so from the very beginning, we see God's intent of this one man, this one woman, gathering together in marriage. And by the way, even though we'll see that there's... in incredible deviation from this in Genesis and following because of sin. But when it comes down to Jesus, right in Matthew 19, he goes right back to this and says, no matter what has happened in world history, this was God's good design and it's still in effect. And all the New Testament epistles where they teach about sex and marriage, they go back to this. Beyond this, beyond what we see that they would meet, we, we see that they would meet in marriage described as the man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to or holding fast to his wife. So we hear this is a, that he's talking about marriage here. There's a bond of marriage between the, the two according to God's design. Starting a whole new family, leaving his father and mother's house and holding fast to his wife. There's a bond. There's a commitment. There's a connection. It's not just a relationship of convenience or preference, but a bond. Finally, after leaving family and holding fast to his wife, the two become one flesh. And that is more than just poetic. It's not just that they are, they are one emotionally, they're one you know, spiritually, they're one uh, relationally. But there's, there's, there's euphemism here, right? This is a physical joining together in sex. It is, sex is here described as a uniting activity. It's an activity that, that brings oneness and unity. It will res, one that will result in procreation, but also unifies them. So you see God's design that healthy sexual activity within marriage 
helps keep the man and wife united together in one. It's one reason why we see later on in Paul's letter that he argues is, hey, don't withhold yourself from one another. Because there's a healthy part of, part of God's good design. And we see that the man and their wife were naked and not ashamed. I love that. How, how much of, of, of sexual activity results in shame today, right? We're ashamed of our nakedness. And, and very shortly after, sin, when they do fall into sin, that's the first thing they notice, and there's a separation between them. They become ashamed. But we see that when a man and a wife are, are married and they, they enjoy sex, that, that nakedness comes back and they are unashamed. It's not based on performance, but there's vulnerability and delight in one another, giving fully to one another in unselfish love. So guys, I just want to pause and I say all that. And for those of you who are blushing, I apologize. But I want you to see, the guys, that sex is God's good gift. It's not something that, you know, Christians should be like, oh, we don't talk about that. No, guys, this is a good gift from God. It is his idea. Guys, the, the fact that, that sex is pleasurable, that it feels good, is part of God's design. You, you ever think that food didn't have to taste good for it to nourish you? You ever think about that? Manna didn't taste that good. And the Israelites had to eat that for a long time, right? It was mildly sweet, maybe. Sex didn't have to be pleasurable, but it is a good gift from God. Which when experienced within, according to his design, according to his purposes, within the bounds he put it, it is holy, it brings joy to us, and it brings glory to God. Now there's, there's much more that could be said. As I said, there, there's other scriptures that talk about this. We don't have time to get in today, but that's where we get our baseline definition. So when, we, so when Paul is talking about you know, uh, abstaining from sexual immorality, what does that mean? Does he have something in mind? Well, simply put, we could say that sexual morality would be any deviation from that. Any deviation. The Greek word here is for sexual morality is porneia, which is, as you can probably guess, the word from which we get the word pornography. It's a, it's a word that's used broadly in the New Testament that really refers to any kind of sexual sin. And here's the interesting thing. There are so many ways that we sin sexually. Some are more destructive than others. Some are more visible than others. Some are more common. But all of them are contrary to, to God's design and God's will for us. And if you want to hear something interesting, almost all of them are found in the book of Genesis alone. Go back and read the book of Genesis. We see God's plan, God's good design for marriage. And then very quickly, like chapter 4, like after the fall, we see everything divert. And I'll go, I'll go through some of them. First, you have polyamory. The first diversion that we have is a man named Lamech taking two wives for himself. God designed one man and one woman, and then he took two, two wives. That's in Genesis 4. We see incest. Sex with a close family member. We see that with Lot and his daughters. In chapter 19, we see rape of, of Diana in verse 34. We see prostitution, Tamar and Judah in chapter 38. We see homosexual activity in chapter 19. We see potential adultery all right, between Potiphar's wife trying to seduce Joseph. We don't, have, we don't really see bestiality or fornication, but... We could go on and on and on, right? And this is maybe getting too explicit. But just to say, there are a lot of ways that we sin sexually. And all of them are what Paul has in mind. He's not picking and choosing some that are worse than others. He says, they're all not God's will for you. So you can't say, yeah, well, I do this kind of sin, but that kind of sin over there, that's even worse. 
He says, none of it's God's will for you. And we all have different proclivities. Some of us may feel a strong sexual desire one way that veers from God's will for us. Others may have a, a desire a different direction. But all of it is not God's will for us. So let's return to our text, though. Why is Paul writing this to the Thessalonians? Well, Thessalonica was a large city, a Greco-Roman society with all kinds of philosophies, cultures, pagan worship. It, this was not a city where people were living according to biblical norms, okay? It is, no, it is just kind of known that at that time in, in Greco-Roman societies that, that males, especially males of stature, were not expected to be sexually faithful to their wives. They would often visit prostitutes or, or have a mistress or something else. And if it wasn't looked upon favorably, like in temple prostitution, it was just kind of like expected and tolerated. That's just kind of how it was. Prostitution was legal. And we see some similarities with kind of our own culture, right? We see some looseness, you know, a departure from a sexual, from biblical sexual ethic. But it's different because we look in our, in our country that what was largely influenced through um, through biblical standards of what of, of sexual morality, and our culture is very quickly moving away from that. Thessalonica is in a different place. They've never had that. They weren't strongly influenced probably by Judaism at the time. They were strongly influenced by Greeks and Romans. And so you have Christians who grew up in a culture that did where this kind of what I just described earlier as sexual morality, that was foreign. How many people would have heard the gospel of Christ and, and, and they knew that like, oh, my dad was never faithful to my wife. Maybe people who heard the gospel and believed they weren't faithful to their wives. This would have sounded foreign. And, and I guess one of the things that I want to point out is the Christian sexual ethic has always been out of step with the surrounding culture to varying degrees. The Thessalonians, no doubt, would have heard this and been like, wow, that seems kind of strict. That seems kind of narrow. That seems kind of constraining and, and kind of weird. You could see how they would, they would look at this and, and, and people who came to Christ and heard the gospel would say, man, this is so different from the surrounding culture. And that is also true for us today. When I say these things, when I talk about what God's design is for marriage, man, that would get you thrown out of places. That would get you called a bigot. That would say you're being oppressive or harmful just for saying it. Guys, because God's word is really always out of step. It's one thing to say God loves you. It's one thing to talk about forgiveness, right? Holiness is an entirely different matter. We see the starkness, the difference between what it means to actually pursue God and live holy. And so Paul speaks to the Thessalonians then and to us now. God's will for us is holiness in all of life including sexuality. So he gives three exhortations here, and all of them begin with the word that, because he's going to unpack what he means, right? He says, it is God's will for your sanctification that, firstly, you abstain from sexual morality. It's God's will that you abstain from sexual morality. That, that's the first thing, and that's putting it negatively, right? Abstain it from it, from any behavior or activity that's contrary to God's design. Don't dip your toes in that water. Simply put, and being clear, abstain, don't participate. To put it even stronger, in 1 Corinthians 6, 6, believers are called to flee from sexual immorality. He says, don't fight it, don't hang around with it, just run away from it, right? And he's picturing Joseph 
when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, she's saying, Joseph, you know, he's a, he's a servant in this, this Egyptian dignitary's house, you know, and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife is trying to get Joseph to sleep with him. He just bolts. You know, she grabs his cloak, he just runs out, right, without his cloak. And so he's using that, that imagery, man, just, just run away from it. This means that uh, if you are free from sexual morality, if you're not in a place where that's a big issue from you right now, that you continue abstaining from it. But if it means that you are in it right now, if you're in a place where this is something you're wrestling with and struggling with, the very first thing he says is just, just stop. Abstain. Turn away from it and don't go back. If you've been sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, even if you're otherwise committed, stop. You need to abstain. If you're secretly looking at pornography, which Jesus tells us, if you lust after someone in your heart, it's as good in God's eyes as if you're sleeping with them, stop. Don't think to yourself, well, I'm already involved, or we're already going this far. He says, no, God's will for you is that you abstain. So no matter what you've done, the first thing is just don't go any further. That's God's will for you. Start by stopping. But then he goes on, he says something else. He says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. The second that is that each one of you would know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Man, these scriptures reveal to us a truth that is so pertinent, and I hope that you'll hear this, right? You are not a slave to your body. You are not a slave to whatever your desires are. And for some reason, there is a a strong deception today that whatever I feel, I have to obey. It defines me. If I have a proclivity, a strong desire towards something, I would be being disingenuous. I would be denying myself. I would not be being true to myself if I did not live out and enjoy that desire. Just because you have a sexual desire doesn't mean you have to abide by it. Rather, Christian, he says, you are not a slave to your body. You are not a slave to your desires. Paul says, no, you are a slave to Christ. He is your master. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and whatever your sinful desires might be. He calls you to have control, for you to have mastery over your body, and not the other way around, your body to have mastery over you. Paul says that that's actually something that the Gentiles do. And Gentiles is used as a catchword here just to talk about people who do not know God. They're not part of God's people. He says that they don't know God. And that's why he says that they live in the passion of lust. This is interesting. This, this thing that we, we talk about today, it's, it's, it's always been this way. This is the way it was true in Thessalonica, right? So when Paul was writing, people say, I feel this way. I have these desires. I've always had them as long as I can remember. I have them and they're so strong. I must obey them. It would be wrong for me not to obey them. Paul says, that's not for you. That's not freedom. That's slavery. And that's just an insidious lie by the devil, right? That if you obey your desires, then you're free. Then you're liberated. Paul says, no. That's slavery. Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. But that's our current sexual ethic. Individuals are defined by their desires, and they have freedom and obligation to express them. 
but that just makes you a slave to your desires. And, and Paul says, Christian, that is not what God has called you to. He's called you to holiness to pursue Christ, and he is your master. So he says, you've got to learn, you've got to know how to control your body, how to say no to yourself by God's grace and with his help, to say, to say yes to God. But you're saying no to sexual immorality, not sex entirely. And he says the third that, or it's God's will that you do not transgress or wrong your brother in this matter. Now, your brother here is, is taken generally. It could be it could mean specifically other Christians. It could also be generically your neighbor, and it means men and women, right? So in either case, he's saying, do not transgress others in this matter. Guys, the first two exhortations are really personal. It's about you, right? Your desires, your body. You are responsible for what you do in your body. Right? That should be obvious, right? But there's a further exhortation. It says you have responsibility in this area for others as well. Because it involves other people. He's saying it's not just that you, you know, when you commit sexual morality, when you are including someone else, you're dragging them into it as well. You're bringing them. You're calling. When somebody commits adultery with somebody else, not only are you sinning, but you're helping or you're causing them to sin as well. Even if they're fine with it. Whenever we commit, whenever we do these things, we're causing someone else to be involved with sexual immorality as well. You know, it's interesting because I, I, I earlier defined our, you know, the, the common sexual ethic of the day is, you know, our, we have this, you know, individual expression of personal desires, and that's primary. We have desires and we have the, we should have, we have the freedom and that we should express them and live in those things. Those are our truth. But there's a corollary, right? And that's, the ethic of our day is consent. It's not all bad, right? There's, there's, hopefully people are consenting, right? But since sex involves more than one person, the other person who's involved has to give consent to participate. The idea is if these two guardrails are in place, if, if, if two adults consent, what's wrong with it? And maybe at a society-wide level that works, but there's something that we're missing. That is not strong enough. We already see the, the problems where, where, where there's a lot of unclarity on how that actually works out in our world. But we can't live by just mere consent. Because it's not just between two people. There's a third person involved in all these discussions. Because even if you and someone else consent, we agree to do this, God does not consent. God does not consent. God does not consent to you and someone else committing sexual immorality. He says you have to take care of your own body, your own desires, but also consider others. We're told that God is an avenger in these things, right? We all have to answer to the Lord for the things done in the body. This is true for all sins. Further, we're warned that to disregard this is to disregard not Paul, but Jesus Christ. He says that. Guys, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Guys, so, so he's saying this isn't, even in our day, right? He says this is not, you know, rejecting a Victorian era holdover of outdated, you know, traditional views of sex that are, you know, not really pertinent in our society today. He says, no, this is not cultural. This is the command of Christ. Guys, God loves you. He desires that you would pursue him and follow him and, and be holy in every area of your life. And sexuality is 
one of those things. So I'd actually like to kind of end here with a word for those, because a lot of this sounds like it's just commands and hard things, right? God's call to you, right? But I want you to see the gospel of grace at work here. Much of scripture, the scripture involves warning. It's preventative care, right? That's what Paul is doing. I get the sense that, that Paul is, is issuing preventative care to the Thessalonians. He sees that they are in a culture that holds a completely different view of how sex should be experienced and enjoyed. And he wants to make clear what God's will is so that they would not step into it. But as we all know, we step into it, right? Many of us, most of us, all of us have sinned sexually. Maybe some of us are in the midst of it right now. You're wrestling with unwanted desires. You're indulging in fantasy, in your imagination. You're involved in some active sexual behavior that according to what we've talked about is outside of God's will. What are you to do? Maybe, you, maybe you're, you're wrestling. Maybe it's something you committed in the past and you've stopped, but you're still wrestling with shame, with guilt. I want to offer you just a few brief encouragements. The firstly is, I do encourage you to flee from it. If you are still actively engaged, no matter how long you've been involved in it, flee from it. Choose to put it away today. Run from it. Commit your way to the Lord. And then do it tomorrow as well. It sometimes is that simple, right? It doesn't mean it's easy, but like sometimes the command is just that simple, like, You've gone this far. You don't have to keep going. And that's kind of a temptation we fall into. Well, I've gone this far already. I might as well just go all the way. No. Stop. Don't make it any worse. That's the first thing. Stop and turn around. Secondly, trust that God's way will satisfy you. And God has made a world, and I want you to hear this. God has, we live in God's world. It runs according to God's rules. We can't just do whatever we want and assume that it'll work out. We can't just decide, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk out this room and flap my arms and be able to fly. It, this, this world runs by God's rules. If we live in ways that God commands us, it typically ends well for us. When we depart from those, it typically does not end well for us. Guys, God has so organized his world that he has paired happiness with holiness. When we pursue things that are unholy, that are immoral, there is no doubt a short-term pleasure, but it does not end well for us. It ends in brokenness. It ends in broken marriages and broken hearts and broken bodies. Trust that God knows what he's talking about. Right? Every now and then I'll have conversations with my kids about things, right? And parents, you, you've expressed this. Not specifically sex, just right. Like, hey, you know, if, if you do this, it's not gonna go well, right? And you, like, you almost wanna tell your kids sometimes, like, I love you, and also I'm not an idiot. Cause I did that too, right? You just have to kinda like watch your kids make decisions, and you know where they're gonna lead to, and there's a party that wrestles. Do I just let them make that mistake? I wish they would just listen. Cause I know what I'm talking about in this area, right? Guys, does God know what he's talking about? Does God love you? Is God wise? Did God create sex to be good and to be enjoyed as a good gift? Do you believe those? Who is God in this, right? We always think about my rights and what I want to do, what I think is going to make me happy. Has what you wanted to make you happy ever ended up actually making you happy in the long run? Maybe for a little bit. Guys, trust that the God who made you has good plans for you. You'd be surprised. All right? 
even if it doesn't make sense now, right? Thirdly, confess to God and receive forgiveness. Sexual sins, for whatever reason, there are a lot of sins that carry shame, right? We all have them, things we've done that even long afterwards, we deal with shame. Satan is called the accuser for a reason. He constantly brings it up, constantly drags it back to our attention. And sexual sin, for whatever reason, tends to carry long and abiding shame and regret. Satan has that, that nasty, effective strategy. He lures us away from the Lord with temptations into sin, and then he uses that sin to say, oh, you can't go back to him. Look what you've done. Guys, know that God sees you, and he knows your sin, and he isn't surprised by it, by the way. All right? Whatever you've done, God has seen worse. Jesus knows all of your days. And I want you to hear this. I love this scripture. Uh, Romans 5, 6 through 8 reminds us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. So here's what happens. God has seen all that you have done and all that you're going to do. He knows the sins you're going to do next tomorrow and next week and when you're 80 years old. Every sin you have ever and will ever committed. And he still said, Yes, I will die for him. I will die for her. He, he died to purchase you, to forgive you of your sins, each and every one. 1 John 1, 9. I, gosh, I love this passage. Cling to this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is willing and able to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guys, God, he is willing and able. He is waiting to forgive you. He longs to. He's already purchased everything he needs by the blood of Christ to forgive you. And not just to give you forgiven, like, like, okay, we'll forget it. No. To cleanse you. So you are not stained. You're not, you're not known. You're not characterized by the things you've done wrong by the precious blood of Christ, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Lastly, rely on God's Holy Spirit. Notice, he almost sneaks this in in verse 8. He says, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, comma, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Don't miss this. The God who calls you to holiness doesn't say, Hey, I've got some impossible standard that is really hard to meet, good luck. That's not what God says. God calls you to holiness, and then he gives you his Holy Spirit. He gives you his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. So you have these sinful desires saying, Matt, do this. You know you want to. But you also have the Holy Spirit of God saying, no, follow God. He gives strength. He gives reminders he empowers. He reminds us of the gospel of Christ. When we are weak, he is strong. God lives within you to make you holy. And so sexual sin is just one of the many sins we wrestle with. And even if you were to find complete victory over this, oh man, there's still a whole bunch of other sins. I remember I, there was a time in my life, particularly in high school and college, I'll just be honest, in high school and college, I really struggled with sexual sin and, and sexual temptation. It was really challenging for me. And I remember just like being broken by it. 
thinking, man, it was so overwhelming in my life that I remember thinking like, if I could just get rid of this one sin, what would my life be like, right? Because it was so, it was just always in my focus. You ever have that? Do you, it may not be sexual. For you, it's like one overriding daily, you're just struggling with this sin. And by God's grace, I began to get more and more victory over to where it did not have the power over me. And I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. It was like this giant boulder that was in the way. And after it got moved out of the way, then it's like, oh, oh man, I got pride too. And now I got anger. Now I got selfishness and greed. Like, man, we, not only did, so this is one major sin, right? So even if we were to find complete victory over this, you'd still have pride and anger, selfishness, covetousness, idolatry, greed. Man, there are so many sins that we're dealing with, and Christ's blood forgives them all, and His Holy Spirit gives us power to walk with Christ in the midst of all of them, to leave them behind. I don't know where this... I was having a conversation this week, and... As a, as a quote, Martin Luther has tons of great quotes, and I was talking about this this week, this weekend with somebody. He says, don't, Martin Luther used to say, don't, don't, don't worry when someone says that you're a great sinner, because you are far worse than even they know. Don't take it to heart. You are far worse than they or even you know. Guys, don't rely on your own strength, your own wisdom, your own willpower to overcome your desires, because you will fail. In any sin, not just sexual sin, right? But the God who calls you to holiness supplies you with his Holy Spirit. That should be a hint. Guys, your salvation from beginning to end is by the power of God. You are born again, you are given eternal life, and you will be brought to eternity and through it by the power of God's Holy Spirit within you. God is with you. He's holding your right hand. Your intercessor, Jesus, your high priest is praying for you. His Holy Spirit is within you. So Paul says, walk with him. Don't sit on the path. Don't veer off the path. Walk with him. Press on. Keep going. Keep growing. Day by day, step by step, stay on the path with Jesus Christ. Don't slow down. Don't sit. Walk in the strength of the Holy Spirit of God. Pray with me. Lord God, it is your glory that is on display as we read your word. God, you've called us to your own goodness and glory. You've called us to be like you. Lord, not some outside standard, but you as a good father want us as your sons and daughters to be just like you. And that means being holy. And God, we confess that Lord, just as we were unable to save ourselves, to, for, to cause our own forgiveness, Lord, in our own strength, we are unable to conquer Lord, our sexual desires and our desires for pride and selfishness and greed and gluttony and idolatry. So God, you who call us to holiness, Lord, what you prescribe, would you help us? Would you help us to walk in holiness and help us to lean on the Holy Spirit you've given us? Lord, for those who are struggling specifically with sexual morality today, Lord, would you convict them? Lord, help them to wake up, and if, and I pray they were stirred today to know that it's wrong, and to step out of it, just as you call them to abstain, to step away, to flee. Lord, for those who are struggling, God, would you give them hope in the gospel of Christ, a gospel of forgiveness and purity and cleansing. Lord God, for those who are struggling with shame, would you give them the freedom of the gospel? Lord, to know that they are loved and cherished and cared for and held. And all of this, Lord, I pray that you are glorified. We ask this in the name of Jesus.